0: Uh, last week we were talking about um, the practice of wise reflection, yoni so manasikara, um, investigation, these kind of themes. And um, uh, Ajahn um then on the uh, observance day, was talking about um, contentment and. Um, the uh, the the meshing of the the practice of dhamma with the um, the, the material elements of our world and um, the way that we, we live and, and train ourselves, uh, particu- in particular in the monastic uh, living situation, but obviously that also extends and uh, has its relevance you know, outside the the bounds of the, the monastery also. Uh, we've also be, uh, begun to um, continue our, our readings from last year uh, on the from the commentary on the um, Buddha's first discourse, the, the turning of the wheel. Um, so, readings um, most days of the week, and. Uh, So these uh, these are themes that we've been uh, exploring. Um, the uh, these readings we've been doing have been um, looking at the first noble truth um, and uh, the different attributes of that, the different um, qualities that the Buddha described in the in the first discourse. The um, each of the four noble truths, as he described them, there was a Particular duty or, or response to them, so that, in, uh, that it's peculiar to each one. So that the um, uh, for the first noble truth, the, the the responsibility or the response to to it is that of uh, apprehending or understanding um, fully, knowing Parinyayanti. and then. Um, the uh, so each of the, the four noble truths has a, a duty towards it, and then uh, a um, uh, then the Buddha says this is what should be done, and then um, then he says uh, this uh, this has been done as a third attribute. So there is dukkha is the first element, um, the duty towards it is the second element, and then the um, that the completion is the third, this has been understood, this has been apprehended. So, uh, um, contemplating these various different themes, um, and uh, also just in terms of of, uh, using this uh, retreat time that we have together, these three months, so one month has gone by, today is uh, um, pretty nearly uh, a month since we began, so um, we're well underway um, as far as this retreat goes. So it's a, a time of, of, uh, kind of stabilizing and uh, deepening the, uh, the practice and uh, making it more consistent, worthwhile so the um, in uh considering the, the this both the qualities of, of reflection investigation and also uh looking at the you know the the first noble truth and the, or the four noble truths generally one of the the most useful tools that we have is, uh, that the buddha laid out for us is the um the format known as the dependent origination. This is like a, a way of, of, um, that he described like the fine detail of the Four Noble Truths. So, uh, for those who might not be familiar, the, you know, the first truth is that of discontent or dissatisfaction, suffering, dukkha, stress that this does arise, that there is, this is an experience that we have as human beings. Um, we're not totally blissfully happy all the time. I don't think anyone ar- would argue with that. There are moments when we wobble from utter ecstasy in life. So, uh, there's the experience of dukkha, as the first truth. The second truth is that this has a cause, and that cause is, is tanha, self-centered craving. And then the third truth is that this is curable. There is, um, it's possible to, to be free from dukkha, for the heart to be utterly free of, of uh, discontent, of imbalance, of, um, of stress. The heart can be utterly at ease and free. And then the, the fourth truth is, the, is like the medicine, is the, the cure, the way in which... Uh, that kind of um, finality, that uh, peace and ease can be realized. So dependent origination lays out um, in more fine detail uh, the, um, in a way the, the, the path from the second truth to the third truth. It lays out in detail how it is that, that dukkha comes to be Via the pathway of of craving, self-centered craving of, of tanha, and then um, how it ceases, what is it that brings it to its its end? So this is a, a very powerful and wonderful tool to use, and and for uh, in terms of of developing meditation practice and particularly developing the wisdom element and investigation. This is a probably one of the, the finest tools that we have, and um, it's something that uh, our own teachers, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedho, would stress at great length. Um, I've been on retreats with Ajahn Sumedho before, and w- winter retreats this time at Amravati Monastery in the, in the 80s and 90s, where he would just, the entire retreat, every single Dhamma talk would be on dependent origination, and he gives a lot of talks. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I can talk a lot, but uh, he, he leaves me totally in the blocks. Uh, you know, it'd be a guided meditation for, you know, through the morning sitting, five thirty to six thirty. Uh, morning reflection over the the uh, the uh, breakfast time, the gruel, and then a dhamma talk in the evening. So two or three a day, you'd be getting, uh, each at least an hour long all on dependent origination. So if you do the math, that's three months, that's 90 days, 270 dhamma talks on dependent origination. He spent three weeks on talking about nothing except uh, Avijapachaya Sankara, ignorance, which he shortened actually to to three words. (laughs) He said you could sum up everything uh, about that area with three words, which was ignorance complicates everything but nonetheless he still spent three weeks <laughs> <laughs> running up to the synopsis. So, ignorance complicates everything. So, uh, and also the Buddha, in, in uh, describing this, in, when Ananda uh, came to the Buddha and said, um, this dependent origination, this Paticca Samupada, this is a, um, a wonderful and great teaching and it's as clear as clear can be to me. And then the Buddha immediately rounded on him and said, not so, Ananda. Say not so. Um, dependent origination is proud, subtle, refined, only for the wise to penetrate. Uh, so, scolding him for casually saying that um, he can, understood it completely when he was still not an Arahant, say, uh, saying, well, don't, don't, uh, don't be so quick, Ananda. It's, you might have had some insight into it, but there's, there's many, many layers that go on. So it's, it's also a, a teaching like this that's got so many bits and pieces to it can get all, all get a little bit technical and abstruse. And, and so that the point of the Buddha's teaching is not to pile up a, a whole sort of collection of, of uh, users' manuals and <laughs> just let them sit on the shelf and gather dust. Uh, but their their teachings to help us transform our own hearts, this, this very being. Uh, that is sitting here, listening, talking, hearing, feeling. It's uh, that the only reason the Buddha spoke was to help us. This is—it's you know, not just to decorate the library, but to, um, or to impress with sort of intellectual agility, but to say things, put out things that are of, of direct practical use to us. And so that, um, you know, I won't try and cover the whole of dependent origination and all its ramifications in the course of, a, of an evening. I think I would try the patience of everybody. <laughs> exhaust, exhaust us all, me included. Um, so, uh, anyway, I thought I'd just just touch on a few key points. And also... Uh, I'll assume that most people here are reasonably acquainted with the, the structure of, of that of dependent origination, and it's 12, 12 constituent links. So first of all, the um, we start where we are, where we, we, we begin at that point. So we'll begin where um, The Buddha began the Four Noble Truths, which is at the point of of Dukkha. So, you know, dependent origination describes how it starts out. The problems begin with ignorance, avicca, not knowing, nascience. And then how that that not seeing clearly, that blindness, then creates the causes whereby... um, uh, the uh, subject object duality is becomes more solidified i.e there's a sense of me here in a world out there or me here looking at my mind going on uh, in the inner world and that sense of a subject object gets cemented into into place and then uh, on the basis of a thought or a feeling or a smell or a sight or a sound then um, A feeling arises of pleasure or displeasure or neutral feeling and then uh, if it's pleasant then the 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 craving, the tanha reaction grabs hold of it and and turns uh, turns liking into wanting. Uh, Or it turns disliking into uh, wanting to get rid of, get away from, fearing, hating. Um, Or it just um, causes uh, the, uh, the thinking mind to generate opinions about uh, whatever it is that we're experiencing. And then that, um, that wanting, craving, then amplifies itself through the process of clinging, you know, the, the initial kind of grabbing on then becomes a, a clinging, a gripping, and that then the heart becomes fully invested in that particular thing that we want, that we uh, that we, we like, or that we want to get rid of, or we dislike, and then is born into it. And um, this is what we call birth in, in sort of Buddhist language. It's not just the physical birth and the maternity ward, but the, um, the, the irrevocable uh, absorption of the mind into a particular train of thought or feeling or attitude that we've, we've uh, bought into it which is a kind of common parlance uh, for, for that same process. We're fully bought into it, and um, the heart is tied to that particular thing. And so then we find ourselves getting you know, excited or upset, or we, we chase after the, the thing that we want, or we've, we've um, reacted negatively towards the thing that we don't want, and then uh, we find ourselves uh, in a state of dukkha, discontent. Either we've got what we want and then we, we find ourselves disappointed with it or we've, we find ourselves very happy with it but then we just want more <laughs> and the, the level of addiction has increased or um, we got rid of it but then we find ourselves afraid that it's going to come back again or that we got rid of it and then we find well that really didn't change anything anyway <laughs> or that we got hold of it and that the promise that it, that it gave that it was going to make us feel happy and wonderful and content. Uh, uh, was um, shown to be a a lie, a misconception, misperception. So say, for example, just to give an example of this kind of process, um, a few days ago um, I got a a lengthy, very lengthy email from um, from the organizers of a monastic conference happening at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky in April. And it was a great thick thing, many pages kind sort of stapled together and, and so it said they wanted some information by 15th of February so I thought, okay, great, into the intray, forget about it. Mm-hmm. So then uh, uh, this evening I, I, I thought, oh, I wonder what that message from Gethsemane said. Maybe I can, there's a few minutes uh, here, I'll just take a look at this. So then I start looking through and see um, this is a, a, a kind of large conference, about 40 or 50 people with lots of, of um, uh, heavyweights from both the Christian and the Buddhist side, so people like, well, the Dalai Lama for a start, and people like Robert Thurman and Sogyal Rinpoche, and mm. and then from the Christian side, people like Brother David Steindl-Rast and um, um, Thomas Keating and uh, other bright lights um, so anyway, uh, then I start looking through the schedule, and sure enough, as is always the case in these events, look, day one, lunch, one o'clock. So, um, uh, for those of you who might not be familiar, this is past the witching hour, in terms of Theravadan monastics of the strict observance, which is us lot, um, and so that there's this sinking feeling, ah, oh, again, I have to go through this whole rigmarole, you know, also, being a sort of very much a junior player, like if it was the Dalai Lama saying, sorry, we have to finish by before one, then it'd be a <laughs> non-issue. But, um, I mean, you're just sort of Joe Nobody down at the bottom of the list. Uh, and, you st- and then you say, okay, well, how do we phrase this? So here you are, here's a, um, the eye makes a contact with the light coming off the page, boom. The mind interprets these little symbolic black squiggles on the, the white background. It says one o'clock. <laughs> I mean, who knows if we will even live that long, or whether the, you know, the conference will happen or anything. <laughs> but still, one o'clock. Oh no, they've done it again. I told them. I told them, the guy. I wrote and I said to him, you know, even though I'm Joe Nobody, please bear in mind that Teravada monastics have to finish eating by midday. So please, when you arrange the schedule, bear that in mind. So I, told, I, told, I told them. I told them. I told. Off it goes. And he's a professor at Purdue University. God, he's a Donald Mitchell. He's written books. <laughs> he's supposed to be intelligent. He's blah, 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 blah. So, Dukkha, or in the, the extended version of Dukkha, and it's giving it, giving it its full, um, giving it the, the full brief, is Sokha uh, Parideva Dukkha Dhammanasa Upayasa Sorrow, Lamentation, Pain, Grief and Despair. So there you go, <laughs> we're all familiar with this kind of process. So this is the, the, the kind of thing that happens. So, you know, basically all that happens, I pick up a piece of paper, hold it in front of my face, and light hits the eye, and then Sokha Parideva Dukha Domana Payasa. Like Ajahn Chah would say, you know, understanding dependent origination is like falling out of a tree and counting the branches on the way down. You know, it happens so quick. So, uh, the beginning point um, is that of Dukkha. So this is where the, you know, the Buddha began his teaching at Dukkha. And so that with dependent origination, this is also a place where we can start. Um, as the Buddha also pointed out, Dukkha um, ripens in two ways. There are two ways that Dukkha ripens. The first way is in more Dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why we call it the wheel of rebirth, because what happens is that, you know, uh, that by experiencing the parideva, etc., then that, um, we, we get lost in that, we wallow in it, and so then that wallowing uh, just increases the, the tendency towards ignorance. We feel sorry for ourselves, we feel mopey, we feel alienated, we feel lost, we feel incomplete, and so um, we compound unconsciously the, the avidya, the not seeing clearly, we are suffering, I am suffering, that's what I am. We, 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 am, we amplify it. Uh, <laughs> I just thought of that.
1: <laughs> it's a
0: completely unique coinage so, this evening. Um, and so then that, make, that raises the odds that the next time a, a sensory input will come along in the next you know, nanosecond that we will grab it and we will want it to th- and I hope it will provide relief or we'll want to get rid of it because it'll be another thing that's making life hard for me and around and around and around we go. So this is dukkha ripening in, in, in further dukkha. So the other way that dukkha can ripen is in what the Buddha called search which means that the experience of, uh, that experience of pain uh, discomfort, stress, dis-ease then um, that, there's a degree of mindfulness there, or a level of intuitive wisdom, and then the mind grabs you know, takes hold of it and says, why do I feel this way? Where does this come from? What's the cause of this? This can't be the whole story. So this is what we call search, is that the presence of that reflective, wise sense. So the dukkha is there, but it's not filling the entire space. There's some space around it where the intuitive faculty says, what is this? Oh, not again. I can't believe it. I did it again. (laughs) Even when I said I was never going to do it again. Even while I was thinking, don't do it again. I'm doing it again. I was still doing it again. So that we, um, we are able to hold that dukkha, to apprehend it to meet it, to know it, and, so that, uh, and to recognize, oh, this is Dukkha, this is just an experience in the heart. So, um, in one very well-known little discourse, the Buddha points out how then, that the experience of Dukkha is a cause for faith, for sadha to arise, um, which might seem like an, uh, an ex- uh, unexpected link. But it's an important one because what what this means is that suffering gives rise to faith because the at that point then there's that because dukkha has been apprehended there's a degree of wisdom knowing it, then it's like there's knowing that this is dukkha is in a way saying, Therefore there is that which is not dukkha. Right? So that there's a this is what the the awakening of faith is about that by saying this is dukkha we're recognizing that it's not it's not the whole universe that there is therefore logically that which is not dukkha aha and, uh, and because the heart already intuits that to be the case then it illuminates says, yes that's right keep going <laughs> follow this so then that quality of faith um, uh, is the uh, the cause of a whole chain of of then uh, of development, so that quality of faith gives rise to uh, an ease of heart, a delight, and then that that um, that ease gives rise to uh, tranquility in the body, to uh, to rapture, to contentment, and these become the basis. These qualities of of, uh, of um, say, rapture or contentment, or, or what you can call just um, self-respect, uh, like a, 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 um, a feeling of self-reliance or, or, or comfort, lack of restlessness, steadiness of heart. Then that becomes that. Those all become the cause, the causes for the development of samadhi, of the um, integration and balance of of the mind, of a quality of focus, and the mind resting easily in the present moment, the attention resting easily here in the present, samadhi. And when samadhi is established, when there's that attention to the present then the natural result of that is insight arises, knowledge and vision of the way things are. When we, uh, again, because of this, in the innate intuitive faculty of the heart, as soon as we stop you know, racing around and, and settle down and just open our eyes and look, then the intuitive wisdom, the intelligence of the heart starts to discern the patterns of things, and uh, insight can arise. We, we begin to, to see the... Intrinsic transiency and selflessness, selfless nature of all experience, internal or external. And then the heart lets go. There's a dispassion. It's impossible to cling in the face of that insight. The heart loosens its grip. And then the result is, is one of freedom. So that began with Dukkha. That was the awakening moment, and as you might have noticed, this pain gets our attention. How often have we been sitting in a long period of meditation, and then the mind's going yadda, 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 going off to the past, going off to the future, figuring out next week's shopping, reliving old arguments, planning new arguments, you know, the whole business. And it goes on and on and on, and every so often you sort of stick your head above the water and think, oh God, where's my breath? <laughs> wasn't I meditating? Boom, back do we go. I mean, Then after about half half an hour, 40 minutes, your knee starts screaming. And then uh, suddenly we're paying attention. All of that, the internal dialogue falls into the background because my knee has taken over. And so that grabs the attention. If we we wake up, we're able to focus a bit more directly and completely because uh, the the pain is... is, uh, leapt to the fore. So, you know, we're not seeking pain, but the fact is that, you know, all of us noticed how when something hurts, it gets our attention. Just a little tiny, just this morning, walking down from, from my cootie, there was a stone in my, in my shoe. And I kept trying to flick it out as I was walking down. And it kept, and it kept just moving around, couldn't, couldn't shift it. And finally, I found out it was in my sock, <laughs> kind little thing. It got my attention, so what was the experience of walking down the hill? Beautiful morning, mist in the valley, bright sunshine, trotting along, pain. No pain, pain, no pain, pain, no pain, pain. (laughs) Gets your attention, doesn't it? A little fleck of dust in the eye. Suddenly, that's the only thing in the universe. So that we shouldn't resent the presence of Dukkha in our lives but use it as this launch pad for for liberation. That's where the the practice begins, uh, at that point of Dukkha. So then, going back down the chain, following the chain back, um, back from Dukkha to birth, birth to becoming, becoming to clinging, clinging to uh, craving, and craving to feeling. So all of the, the, the classic teachings and texts um, point to this spot on the, the chain of dependent origination at the, as the weak point, <coughs> the, the junction between feeling and craving. This is the weak link in the chain. And so, so much of the meditation practice uh, the aim of, uh, of the formal meditation um, and the ongoing establishment of mindfulness uh, is aimed at spotting this weak link and not, uh, not letting the, the process um, take off and, and proliferate from that. Because if we, we just live uh, mindfully, if the, the heart is, is firmly established in in, in heedfulness, as awake, uh, as awakeness, attention, mindfulness, clear comprehension, and so forth, then we live in the world of perception and feeling, don't we? The sight and sound, and feeling, things are pleasant, things are unpleasant, things are sweet, things are bitter, things are heavy, things are light. Uh, And now those feelings, those perceptions, we see blue, we see green, we see red, we we taste sweet, salty, sour, hot, cold, etc. These are utterly innocent in their own right, aren't they? They're just um, the flow of perceptions through the the field of awareness. Um, You know, blue is not better than red, salty is not better than sweet, heavy is not better than light, or worse, they just are what they are. They're utterly innocent and pure. Uh, uncomplicated. There's no dukkha intrinsically associated with any of those experiences, perceptions, thoughts, even emotions and moods and ideas, memories. That all, They all are just what they are. And even if we look the the, the feelings, uh, they can be extremely blissful, pleasant, or very mediocre, uh, unremarkable, or extremely painful. We can have a terrible headache or, or or bite into something that's extremely bitter. Um, But in itself, it's just a taste, it's just a feeling. And when we we look closely, we really examine that deeply, it's like, oh yeah, it's just a feeling. Huh, look at that. I absolutely would not have chosen to have this experience, but here it is. It feels like this. So this is like living uh, in mindfulness, living, and we're living at the level of feeling, of uh, perception. It's just as much. So at this point there is no dukkha, the heart can be completely free with that. So it's, it's important to bear in mind that it's not just um, being so dull <laughs> and, heart, you know, and, and semi-conscious or unconscious that you know, we're almost like stupefied so that the, the, you know, the experiences are just barely registering. It's not really, <laughs> it's not that level of, of um, Numbness that we're aiming to achieve, (laughs) but uh, but that it's a, a based on mindfulness, based on on that awareness that there's a stopping of experience. It's 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 being checked, it's being held, and this is also one of the words, one of the meanings of the word niroda, cessation, is also to hold in check or to stop. Like a uh, like holding a uh, if you're riding a horse, it's like having a check on the on the reins, it's like holding something back. Or if there's a um, uh, a uh, if you're unloading gravel from the back of the pickup truck, it's like you know holding the the uh, the, um, the tailgate closed because you know all of the uh, the gravel's going to slide out if you if you don't. So you you know holding it up so that the gravel won't slide out. There's a you're checking the flow of the of the gravel out of the back of the truck. So similarly, that there's a, a as a, through that effort of mindfulness, there's a holding in check that the feelings of liking are not being allowed to flow into um, wanting. The feelings of dislike are not being allowed to flow into to wanting to get rid of, etc. So so much, a huge quantity of, of uh, our practice is then aimed at this point, um, because this it, is extremely difficult to do. As I say, it's just like falling out of a tree, you know, it all happens so fast that liking turns into wanting, you know, almost you know, without uh, you know, enough of a, a, a fragment of a finger snap to play with, to sort of to get our um, change of attitude in there. So this is why we train ourselves. This is why why we uh, we talk about developing mindfulness, developing awareness. This is what the point of so much of the formal practice is like sharpening our attention so that we get to know the feeling of liking, get to know the feeling of disliking, get to know the feeling of mediocrity, neutral feeling. And then training ourselves to see it turn into wanting, and then the wanting be turning into clinging, and clinging to becoming we track the, the experience back down the, the chain. And then we, uh, we train the heart to, to recognize in this way. So this is why we talk so much about letting go. Because uh, with the, the, the formal meditation and the development of mindfulness through the day, then we often catch the process just as we're clinging. We we grabbed hold of something we like something oh I want it or oh, I don't like that how could they and then we see that the the the, the clamping on the kind of the, you know that it hasn't maybe ripened into complete sort of full scale dukkha but we just we feel that the 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 grip launching onto some uh, some object some feeling some experience so this is why we talk about letting go so this is the other aspect of dependent origination. so much is like, is like recognizing, really training the heart to know that feeling of clinging, that it's almost like a a sound that you recognize, like the the bell at the end of the sitting, or the, um, the, the sound of a car coming up the drive, or you know, things that are so familiar to us, like it's the signal, oh, there it goes again, who's coming, who's arriving, so that we are are acquainting the heart with that feeling so that as soon as we know that that we recognize that feeling of of grabbing on that feeling of clinging, we respond by let go, let go, let go, let go and then when we let go then to come back to that that quality of the simplicity of, of feeling so in this process, in, in training the heart, it's, there's a couple of pieces that are really, very, very helpful in doing this. One of which is when you find the heart clinging to something, don't let go immediately. Just cling consciously for a few seconds. So you find like like uh, grabbing onto, say, this um, Gethsemane schedule. You know, so that. Seeing the mind grabbing hold of something and then running with it, actually in uh, ironically enough, the session on that first day was on suffering and alienation <laughs> <laughs> Theravadan, the strict observance Tervad's feeling suffering and being ali- alienated from the rest of the group all tucking into their lunch, <laughs> so this that. Uh, so then the, we see that, and then the mind goes, "Oh, they've done it again. I don't believe it." So then you, you see the mind grabbing it, and think, oh, okay, let's just let's just stay with that feeling for a moment. Just let's pick it up, feel it, feel that that the the stickiness of it, the heaviness of it, the tightness of it. This is and then just to, to recognize, oh, this is clinging. This is what clinging feels like. So it can be anything, like getting anxious over an ache in your knee, fretting about your, uh, some event in your past, worrying about your, your job or your, your work or your spouse or your whatever, your you know, declining health or whatever is the, f- the favorite uh, angst of the moment. And the, the mind has jumped on it. And they go, oh yeah, my poor knee, or, oh dear, yeah, my, my my poor wife, oh dear, poor me. <laughs> and then we recognize the clinging, just stay with that. Really cling as consciously as possible for a few seconds. Like, poor me. This is not fair. This is not fair. It's always me. It has to do it. It's always me that gets left out. It's always so. Just let yourself fully, totally, glom onto it and, and become it. And notice what that feeling's like. Just let the heart really know that feeling of grasping. And then let go. To do the best that we can to just loosen the grip and to let go. To say it is just a feeling. Let go. It's not always you. <laughs> Let go. Is this such a big deal? Let go. I've often mentioned how um, Ajahn Samada would say, like in his early years of of his monastic training, he would just use "let" this word, these words, "let go" as a as a mantra. He would just all day long, just let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, for years, literally years and years and years. He would just keep that going internally because of. Needing to train the mind to, to to see clinging and to break the habit, He'll, he also has an immensely uh, uh, developed skill at visualizations. So he used to write the words "let go" in his mind, and he uh, arranged. He's very he's got a very leonine color sense. So you have like g- big green letters with like purple ro- you know, purple roses around them and then flashing lights around the purple roses that were going in orange. (laughs) Think, let go, let go, let go. So, so, meditation can be kind of entertaining sometimes. (laughs) Have your own wild color schemes that nobody else can see. And so then, when the heart does let go, when that grip loosens, then again, in exactly the same way. Once, Once we've let go, rather than just sort of immediately Jumping back on, you know, you let go of some thoughts, so you then immediately go back to the breath, or to the inner sound, or to the, you know, the, the feeling of the footstep, or washing the dishes, or whatever we're doing. Just when when the the letting go has happened in exactly the same way, just for a few seconds, let the heart truly know the feeling of not clinging. Just stay with that. Just to, for, just for no other reason than to fully taste that. Experience of the heart not grasping, not craving, not clinging. What does it feel like to not, not cling? The, the Buddha said, the cessation of grasping is deathlessness. It's very simple, but the deathless state is not some kind of cosmic. Um, super ecstasy that happens you know, at the end of the universe when all beings are enlightened or even when just this being becomes totally enlightened and so the deathless is the, the, the ground of your own mind it's the, the, the basic fabric of this very mind this very being that unconditioned reality, like Ajahn Chah, the book of Ajahn Chah's teachings that just was released, Being Dharma. It's uh, it's not some kind of unique feature that a few you know a few beings get born with. You know, if you if you happen to be an avatar or a messiah, you know, you get you get born as uh, being Dharma, but everybody else is <laughs> is not quite Dharma or Shmama. Or, yeah, they, uh, you know, the rest of us have all been born with a with a uh, a short deal, and some special beings like Ajahn Chah and Jesus and the Buddha and so forth. Uh, maybe they are, or Krishnamurti, they got a special, uh, special package. The deathless is is just is a dramatic kind of word, the deathless or the unconditioned, they sound like the highfalutin words. You could also translate it as, you know, the normal mind. Part of us wants a little bit of extravagance, you know. Hey, you know, I don't want to be normal. (laughs) I want to be this, you know, brilliant, amazing, unique being. But I fear that I'm not. Yeah, part of us feels attracted to being special or having those kind of exalted qualities, and part of us feels daunted and and out of our depth or or alienated from that or out of the reach of that. But those are both extreme ways of of holding it, and neither from a position of of a a negative self-view or an inflated self-view, when, when we look at the nature of this very heart, when the clinging stops, what do we experience? Is purity, radiance, peacefulness. One of Ajahn Chah's most profound teachings is, is uh, in one of, it's, it's so simple. And uh, I remember last year when I think it was last year, when Ajahn Pasana and I were editing Bodhinyana for, for uh, a new edition of that book, Ajahn Chah's Teachings, and I couldn't believe that I, I had seen this you know, dozens of times, and had and, uh, and read it, and had never, I hadn't really sunk in what Ajahn Chah was saying. It was right there in sort of the very first piece of the book, Fragments of a Teaching, when Ajahn Chah defining the Buddha and the, and the Dhamma, and he says, the Buddha is, the one who knows, uh, that quality of awareness that uh, arises when the heart is established in sila, samadhi, and panya, virtue, concentration, and wisdom. And what is the Dhamma? The Dhamma is the qualities of of purity, radiance, and peacefulness that are realized by the one who knows. That's it. And it just slid right by me for... uh, and suddenly last year when we were looking at it, I thought, that's amazing. It's just, it's just so simple. This is what the Dhamma is. You know, you have, uh, maybe you think the Buddha Dhamma is like this vast collection of uh, complicated knowledge, like um, this huge compendium done in Thailand called Buddha Dhamma by uh Than Chokun, Thamma Pitok. It's sort of massive, of um, heavy, light, sweet, sour, green-blue, red-yellow, beautiful sound, ugly sound, etc. But still, that, those perceptions can be based consciously or unconsciously on the feeling of, of self, of me here experiencing a world out there. And that um, when mindfulness is, is fully developed and f- taken to the level of pure wisdom, satipanya, then uh, what's happening is that at that point, when the, the heart is truly established in, in that quality, then there's no ignorance. The whole dependent origination um, cycle is not, is not kicking off, It's not, the, the, the key is out of the ignition, it's not, it's not being started. So that the um, uh, when there's no ignorance, then the the whole process of of subject-object division, duality, does not kick in. (coughs) Because as soon as uh, the uh, Avijja comes to be, that's why Ajahn Sumedha used that phrase, ignorance complicates everything. Avijja-pacheya-sankara means ignorance conditions formations, or sankara, compoundedness, Um, essentially duality. And then sankara conditions uh, vijñana, consciousness discriminative consciousness uh, and vinyana conditions nama rupa so these two, nama rupa, vinyana, the Buddha talked about them as like two bundles of reeds supporting each other that um, they, they prop each other up so uh, uh, and then from nama rupa and vinyana if you can, if you want to um, P- Depict it in a way, in a way, it's like the vinyana side is the, the subjective knowing piece of it, and the nama rupa is the the objective known piece of it. That's one way of looking at it. Um, and then the uh, that solidifies into the sense of me in here and the wo- perceptual world out there, the six senses, and then contact with the six senses, and then leading to feeling, so forth. So, beginning with ignorance, um, then that sense, the, the, the kind of first germ, the first little um, movement of duality begins, that there is a, when the, when the vision of Dhamma is clouded, then sankara arises. That means the sense of the beginning of duality, of, a, of an inside and outside, a here and a there, of this and of that, a subject and an object, takes root. And so what uh, one um, uh, elder monk called um, Bhikunyana Nanda described as the nama uh, Namarupa Vijnana vortex, so if you like, if you imagine like when there's ignorance, and it's just like that first little movement of sankara of division, then gets its momentum going and turns into like a whirlpool, of the uh, mind and body, the the, conscious, uh, the kind of the sense of, of uh, an observer and an observed, You know, gains strength like a whirlpool spinning and spinning and spinning, like a, a whirlwind gathering strength, until it you know, picks up a, a you know, particular object and, and whirls it whirls it away. So that this, uh, this last element is like not allowing that movement to, that first lurch of movement to, to begin. So by truly establishing the heart in mindfulness and wisdom, then ignorance does, does not arise. There's no ignorance. And so then the, um, the whole chain of causes for dukkha is not set into being. So this is a, a refined level of practice, but it's also worth uh, having on the map um, that you know, maybe most of the time we're just sort of you know, waking up in the middle of the broken glass, trying to figure out, how do I, how do I get here? How do I get out of here? You know, and so that uh, we're kind of way down the track. But it's not always the case, and particularly during retreat time, we can develop you know, much more acute, uh, qualities of of uh, attention and calm and awareness, and so we can begin to see how, you know, in our best moments, when there really is mindfulness and wisdom, that that we can train the heart just to rest in that quality of of awareness, the heart knowing its own nature, the dhamma aware of its own nature, completely. Uh, it's simple completely impersonal and uh, and yet bright peaceful clear and that uh, in in essence we are the the training is guiding the heart towards more and more completely establishing that quality of simply of resting in that uh in its own nature knowing its own nature that the heart knowing the the Dhamma, knowing its own nature. And that the more firmly that's established, the more, you know, occasionally maybe we just sort of pick up a sense of that for a fraction of a, a second here and there. But Slowly, the more that we recognize that's the quality that we're aiming to uh, establish, to make clear and steady and firm, then we, we uh, continually create that... Uh, like a, a strengthening support for that, that's brought more and more to the fore and becomes a basis for our practice. So that then as the, um, the mind lurches from that and picks up a thought or, or follows a feeling or, or gets distracted by a sound, then because we, the, the, we've moved the baseline right back to the unconditioned, the To the uh, mind ground itself, then the, the, any movement from that is much more noticeable you know, the the lurching from that is, is very noticeable, so we are um, much more, much more able to catch that process of dependent origination kind of launching into being much much earlier on so as soon as that sense of duality or or the mind grabbing a, a, a thought or a, picking up a a sound, we notice it, it's seen, it's, it's, it's understood. And it is much less able to gather momentum and to get carried away, to be, to be uh, uh, drawn by the promise of the attractive or to be uh, threatened by the, uh, the frightening. It just leaves it alone. The pleasant is just the pleasant, the painful is just the painful. It's, there's, there's no self in it. There's nothing to to have in it. There's nothing to get rid of in it. It just is what it is, and the heart is remains a, a, at ease with it. Anyone. Uh-huh.